My name is Jasmine Nicole, and you are tuned in to Seasoned Crime. This is a true crime podcast where you will get to hear a story about a minority. Here on this podcast, minority includes anyone who is part of some kind of protected class or anyone who is just part of the minority group. There's no discrimination. We look at crimes from all races, genders, sexualities, ages... I tell you the stories that you probably haven't even heard about because they aren't the ones that are plastered all over the front page or all over social media. Probably aren't going to find a Netflix documentary about the crimes that you're going to hear on this show, but that doesn't make these stories any less worthy of being told. How's everyone doing this week? I feel like there's just so much going on lately in the true crime world. Starting with the Casey and Vicki White who have no relation to each other, by the way. For those of you who don't know, Casey White was an inmate and Vicki White is the corrections officer at an Alabama jail and they escaped from an Alabama prison. Vicki helped Casey escape. They were captured after 10 days of being on the run and Casey was taken back to prison and Vicki ended up dying from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Their story was wild. Not only because of the obvious, but also just know that Vicky was literally standing at the door of retirement. Like the door was open. All she had to do was take a step to go through. If I'm not mistaken, it was either the day of or the day before her retirement date. I don't know. I mean, no judgment. <laughs> we have all done some crazy, stupid stuff for love. But this woman not only gave up her retirement, But she was on the run for 10 days just for them to get caught and her to shoot herself. Literally, she put her life on the line for him. So that one was a crazy one. And then on Saturday, tragedy struck once again. In Buffalo, New York, a white man went to a grocery store in a predominantly black area and shot and killed 10 people and injured three minorities intentionally. I say intentionally because there's also a video of him approaching a white man, and not only did he walk away without shooting him, but he actually apologized before he walked away. He said sorry to the white man and walked off while going through and shooting people of color. These people literally just went to the grocery store And because of the color of their skin, they never made it out of that grocery store. The perpetrator of this crime is, what do you know, he is safe, without a scratch, completely unharmed, and sitting behind bars right now. There's so much that I can speak on about that, but I'm going to have to save that for another episode because I feel like if I get started, I'm just going to keep going. So for now... All I have to say on that is our prayers are with all of the victims and all of the families of the victims. Those families will never be the same again. Let's go ahead and get into the one that I have for you today. So today, our primary highlight is going to be a tad bit different. I know I always speak to being inclusive of minorities of all kind, and I know when we think of minority, most of the time, we automatically go to people of color. 
But there are white people who fall into minority groups. They may not be part of the minority race, but they do fall into groups of minorities. And I want to make sure that this platform shows all around those whose stories are in the shadows, who don't get told, the stories that probably you you won't hear about on the major podcast. So today, we are going to highlight a man by the name of Barry Gibbs. Barry is a white male who was accused of killing a black prostitute. I found today's story by looking at one of my all-time favorite sites, which is The Innocence Project. If you have listened to almost any other episode of this podcast, you know that I think so highly of The Innocence Project and everyone involved with them and the work that they do. I know there are so many people in jail and for well-deserved reasons, but to imagine how many people are sitting in a cell because they didn't have the proper money or the resources to fight for a case for a situation that they shouldn't be in in the first place. These stories always pull up my heartstrings because, I don't know, it's like, how how do you get it so wrong? How do you go through so many phases of the so-called justice system? I mean, you get arrested, you go through trial, you go through sentencing, you go through so many different phases. And every time I read these stories or, you know, hear about these stories of the wrongful convictions, there were things wrong every single step of the way. It's not like one thing could have turned it around, but there are multiple things that were done incorrect. And each time those things just get put to the side. And especially when someone's life is at stake. I guess that's because American justice isn't really justice for all now, is it? So get ready and listen up. Because the story of Barry Gibbs is one that's going to go from zero to 100 real quick. Barry Gibbs was a Vietnam veteran who was working as a postal worker. He did have some struggles with drug addiction through his adult life. He was just living a normal day-to-day life, but on November 4th, 1986, everything changed. On that day, Virginia Robertson, a black woman, was found lying under a busy Brooklyn highway covered up with a blanket. Virginia was a known prostitute, but I can't say for sure if that was part of why her life ended. She had been strangled to death and was just left under this highway. NYPD took the lead on the case trying to figure out what could have happened to Virginia. How did she get there? The lead detective on the case was Detective Louise Epolito. He worked the case along with his partner, Stephen Caracapa. It just so happened that there had been an eyewitness who saw what they thought was the perpetrator dumping the body. A man by the name of Peter Mitchell went out jogging on the morning of November 4th, and according to Peter, he witnessed a white male and a black woman sitting together in a gray vehicle that was parked by the highway. Peter continued to watch, and he saw a male exit the vehicle and walk over to the passenger side, pull out a body, and then lay the body on the ground and cover it with a blanket. After about three seconds, the perpetrator noticed Peter looking, so he ran back to the driver's side and left. So I'm going to have to pause the story right there and say, what? 
for me, this already was an eyebrow raising moment because are you telling me that this man watched someone dump and cover up a body, saw the man drive off, and then that was it? I wasn't able to find anything in my research saying that he was the one who called the police or anything. I just know that he did come forward as an eyewitness. So I'm not saying none of this isn't possible, but I'm saying I feel like this eyewitness account leaves quite a bit more questions than it gave answers. So going back to the story, along with the account from Peter, the detectives investigated and in their investigation, they ran across a man by the name of Barry Gibbs, who previously had a relationship with Virginia. Based on their prior relationship and the fact that Barry was a white male who was known to have some kind of contact with Virginia, Barry was brought in for questioning. Barry was aware that he knew the victim, but he was also 1000% sure that he had no parts in her death. So sure, he was innocent. So knowing he was innocent, Barry willingly answered any questions that they had And he even agreed to stand up in a lineup. In that lineup, Barry was positively identified by Peter. I'm going to say right here, this is another red flag that I guess no one paid attention to. Peter was able to immediately identify Barry, even though Barry didn't match the original description that Peter had given when he had described the suspect. There were obvious physical differences between Barry's stature and his weight compared to what Peter had told the cops originally. But, again, this didn't stop or raise any questions. Things just kept on failing for Barry from this point. The police just kept going for Barry. And now that he had been positively ID'd, Barry also, still knowing that he's innocent agreed to allow the police to search his apartment because he had nothing to hide. When they searched Barry's home, they found a pair of red jeans. These jeans matched the description of what Peter had described the perpetrator as wearing. However, another red flag, those jeans didn't even fit Barry. Also, when they looked deeper into Barry, they found that he did, in fact, own a gray car that was very similar to the one that Peter described that was at the scene. The thing is, even though it was similar, Barry's gray vehicle was inoperable. The car had two flat tires, and it hadn't been driven for a good amount of time. At this point, Barry was positive that there's no way any of this could be happening and he felt it in his soul that he was being set up and he got himself a lawyer. Even still, Barry ended up being charged with Virginia's murder and he was put on trial where the prosecution based his guilt on that of Peter's eyewitness testimony as well as the testimony from a jailhouse snitch. Peter testified to his story being exactly what he said before. He saw a white man, who he would later identify as Barry, dumping the body and then covering up with the blanket. The state brought in their own witness as well. They had a jailhouse informant who not only testified for the state in this specific case, 
but had also testified for the state in other cases as well. This informant got on the stand and said that while Barry was in jail awaiting trial, he admitted that he actually killed Virginia. Another fun fact about this jailhouse informant is that he just so happened to have a close relationship with the criminal investigator in the Department of Corrections, and he also had a very extensive arrest record. I mean, there's about three or four red flags that are standing straight up right here alone. The state wasn't the only ones who brought in a fellow inmate to testify. The defense brought in someone as well, and that someone was locked up with Barry for over four months, and they testified that they talked to Barry pretty much every day, and during this entire time, there was not one time that Barry wavered on the fact that he was innocent. The trial ended May 25th, 1998, and on that day, Barry was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life. While he was in prison, Barry stood by the fact that he was innocent, telling anyone who would listen. Nine years after his conviction, Barry got connected to the Innocence Project, and he asked them for help getting a DNA test done to prove that he was innocent. There had been some hair samples found on Virginia's body, but since DNA wasn't really a common thing back then, the sample was never tested. All they knew about it is that it showed characteristics of coming from a Caucasian person. The Innocence Project followed Notion, and based on that, a judge in Brooklyn ordered that the state of New York search the case evidence, which included the hairs that were left, and it also included the rope that was used to strangle Virginia. When they went to get the evidence, they couldn't locate any of it. Come to find out, some of the evidence had been destroyed completely, and whatever wasn't destroyed just so happened to be missing. The evidence wasn't the only thing that had become MIA all of a sudden. Barry's police investigation file? Well, that was also gone. The only people that would have access to any of this were police and others who may have worked at the police station. So I feel like we've done enough episodes to know that if something doesn't sound right, it's probably because it isn't. By 2004, the Innocence Project did everything they could to get any remaining evidence, and they exhausted all avenues, but they came up with absolutely nothing. So at this point, they were getting ready to throw in the towel on this one. Not necessarily because they didn't believe in what was going on, but at the time, the Innocence Project proves innocence based on the testing of DNA evidence. So with no evidence to test, this didn't really seem like a case for them. If you're listening closely, you caught the fact that I said they were getting ready to turn this case over. Before they were able to fully pass this case off, something happened that changed everything. In 2005, police started another investigation. And even though Barry Gibbs played no part in why this new investigation started, he ended up being wrapped up in the web. The person that was being investigated was now retired Detective Louise Eppolito. Louise was being looked at because of possible ties to organized crime. 
He was now living in Las Vegas, and the investigation led police to searching his Vegas home. And what they found was the turning point of everything. Remember earlier I mentioned that Barry's police file was missing, and that's something that only police would have access to. Well, after the search of Louise's home, that file was no longer lost. This alone was enough to get the Innocence Project back in full force. The project now requested that the U.S. Attorney's Office investigate Barry's innocence. The number one question on everyone's mind is why Louise had Barry's file in his home at all. Well, Louise had an explanation for that. He said that he had borrowed the file for a movie that he was working on. Louise had penned an autobiography that was coincidentally called Mafia Cop, the story of an honest cop whose family was with the mob. If this wasn't enough to raise major eyebrows, the final straw was when Peter came out and recanted his statement. Yeah, you heard me. The Peter that was the so-called eyewitness to everything now claimed that he had in fact lied. But not just because he wanted to. He identified Barry in the lineup only because Louise had threatened him, saying that if he didn't do so, he would hurt his family. Not only this, but there in fact was another witness that we never heard from at all. There was a witness that saw the perpetrator that day of the crime, and that was actually a park officer. He had come forward back then when everything had happened, and he admitted to police that he saw the guy. However, this park officer was never asked to come in for a lineup, and he was never asked to testify. Based on these recent events, after 17 years of being locked up, Barry Gibbs was released and exonerated on September 29, 2005. In the following year, in 2006, Barry sued the city of Brooklyn. A few years after Barry was released from prison, Louise and his then-partner Stephen were sentenced to now go inside prison themselves. Their investigation into these two led to them being convicted of a total of, listen to this, eight murders, conspiracy to commit murder, racketeering, extortion, narcotics, illegal gambling, and obstruction of justice. Turns out that they were in fact working for the mafia. It is believed that Louise used Barry as a scapegoat and that Virginia's actual killer most likely had mob ties. The trial also revealed that this wasn't a complete surprise to the Brooklyn PD. At some point prior to everything that had happened with Barry, there had been an investigation into Louise, and that could have led to him being fired then, but obviously it didn't. Louise's fingerprints had been found on police documents that had been leaked to a mobster, but for whatever reason, no disciplinary action was ever taken at all. Barry attended the sentencing trial of the ex-detectives, and he confronted them, saying, quote, Mr. Apolito, do you remember me? I'm the guy you put away for 19 years. I am Barry Gibbs. 
You don't remember me. You don't remember what you did to my family. End quote. March 6, 2006, Louise was sentenced to 100 years and Stephen got life plus 80 years. I'm sure seeing Louise go down was bittersweet for Barry, but other than that, life on the outside wasn't at all what he expected. I mean, yes, he was out of prison, but things were hard. Even though he had been exonerated, he left with what he came in with, which was next to nothing. At least when he first went inside, he had a job, but now, after being out of the free world for 17 years, he was struggling to survive. He had to relearn how to live. He went inside in the late 80s, so you can only imagine how different and advanced everything was when he got out in 2005. He ended up having to get on government assistance and was living off food stamps and in a rent-subsidized room. His time away also ruined the relationship he had with his son. And at this point, that was pretty much non-existent. Barry was a free man, but he was bitter about everything that was stolen from him, all because of this dirty cop, and rightfully so. Barry fought back demanding reparations for what had happened. There was nothing that could make up for the 17 years of his life that was stolen from him. But he knew that he also didn't deserve to have to be living in damn near poverty because of it. Barry wasn't the only one who felt this way. On July 3rd, 2010, the state of New York agreed to pay Barry $9.9 million and another lawsuit that he had filed was settled for $1.9 million. So in total, Barry had been granted $11.8 million. This was the largest monetary settlement of its kind in the state of New York. To all of us, that sounds like a huge win. It's a large, life-changing sum of money. But to Barry, it was on the low end of what he was looking for. It's pretty much impossible to put a value on the life that was stolen from him. But he went in hoping for at least $1 million per year that he did behind bars. Even though he didn't get exactly what he hoped for, his settlement did help improve his life. He was able to rebuild his relationship with his son. He had a girlfriend turned fiancé, and this was a woman who he knew prior to going to prison. And Barry was now able to be a part of the lives of his three grandchildren. Life was looking better for Barry, but something that money just couldn't buy was health. Barry had been diagnosed with cancer, and sadly, on March 23rd, 2018, Barry passed away. His attorney and the director of post-conviction litigation for the Innocence Project, Vanessa Potkin, spoke about Barry after his passing. She said, quote, Barry loved life and he lived it to the fullest. Everyone who met Barry fell in love with him. I think it was because he was the most authentic and honest person. He spoke the raw truth and he just told it like he saw it. There was no pretense about him. He was old New York. He had an incredible sense of humor, the biggest heart, and he was sharp, never missing a beat. He was a man of his word, and if he said it, he was going to do it. You could always count on Barry." End quote. 
And that was the story of Barry Gibbs, a man who was pulled into the system by a cop who was working for the mob. I mean, this is some crazy, only seen in movies type of stuff. So imagine this truly being someone's life. In this case, the police came up with a suspect and saw it through to the point where Barry was supposed to spend the rest of his life behind bars. I would like to think that we've evolved to the point where something like this can no longer happen, but sadly, that's a lie. It's 2022, so I think I can say that science has gotten us to the point where it would be a lot harder for something like this to happen, but definitely not impossible. I do hope that the time that he did get out and the time that he had money, he was able to live and enjoy as much of his life as he possibly could. As always, I appreciate each and every one of you for listening and spending a little bit of time with me this week. Don't forget to follow the show page at Seasoned Crime on Instagram, as well as liking and rating the show for those of you that listen on Apple Podcasts. Let me know how you're feeling about the show. Hit us in the DMs. You can email us, seasonedcrime at gmail.com. I would love to hear from all of you. I hope that everyone has a great week and make sure to come back next week so I can tell you yet another story about a minority. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Seasoned Crime. Today's episode was researched, edited, and recorded by your host, Jasmine Nicole.